You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this, this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. On today's show, we're going to present highlights from the first ever Deck Mantle Festival conference in Amsterdam. Our editorial team was at the I Film Institute on the festival's opening day to head up an afternoon of live interviews and discussions. It was a great way to get the festival up and running and we'd like to thank everyone who came down to listen in and ask questions. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We're going to dive into a panel discussion hosted by RA's news editor, Aaron Cooltape, about reissues in electronic music. After that, we'll hear part of the panel hosted by RA's tech editor, Mark Smith. That one was called Inspiration versus Process, and it sees Mark speaking to Object, Dasha Rush, Randomer, and Palms tracks about the different ways artists turn their ideas into music. But first, Aaron was joined by three people who are now cornerstones of the Dutch electronic music scene. Antel, who runs Rush Hour, Serge, the man behind Clone, and the DJ and producer, Young Marco. They met to discuss how the current reissue boom is impacting DJs, record shops, label owners, and music lovers in 2016. Hi everyone, welcome. This is a really nice way to kick off this year's Deck Mantle Festival. Uh, my name is Aaron Coulte, I'm the news editor at Resonant Advisor. But first things first, we're here to speak about reissue culture. As many of you probably know, reissues have become a really big part of the uh, electronic music scene in these past few years. Um, they're a big, uh, big presence on the, uh, the racks of uh, shops like uh, Rush Hour and Clone, and they're sort of making their way into uh, people's homes for homeless thing and also into the, the record bags of DJs playing in clubs. So I've got three uh, esteemed guests here today to discuss and chew on this. Um, we're going to tackle a few key questions. These, these three gentlemen have been involved with, with reissue culture from pretty much every conceivable angle as, uh, as DJs, as shop owners, distributors and, and label bosses. So um, many of you probably already know these, these guys, but I'm going to introduce them anyway. Over on the far side there, we've got Ansel, who's uh, one of the founders of, of Rush Hour, a musical uh, institution here in Amsterdam. Uh, a couple of months back, the Rush Hour shop moved into a nice new home, uh, and Ansel's sort of juggled that move with an uh, increasingly busy DJ schedule that's taken him uh, through Japan, Europe, and the US so far this year. Uh, next to him is Serge. Serge is the man behind Clone. Like Rush Hour, it's a dynamic, uh, multifaceted organisation that comprises a, uh, a record shop in Rotterdam, a distribution hub, uh, and also like a family of labels and, and sub-labels. And uh, here next to me, I've got Marco, aka Young Marco. This man is a, uh, a champion DJ. Um, he's also a pretty great producer to boot. The number of gigs he's, uh, he's played in the last 12 months is uh, pretty staggering. And I would say that number's probably only exceeded by the amount of cigarettes you've smoked at those gigs, I would say. That's uh, debatable. <laughs> so I, I'd... 
like to sort of start this discussion with the most sort of simple terms possible. Antal, maybe you'd like to answer this one. What's the what's the process of doing a reissue? How do you actually go about it? Well, um, first you try to find uh, uh, some music that you want to reissue, and then uh, you find the people who own the rights. Uh, you ask them if you can, you know, do a release together, and you do it if if they agree. I mean, it's in that respect, it sounds like a fairly uh, simple uh, process, but I guess there's lots of stories I hear about people going to really uh, extreme lengths um, to sort of get in touch with an artist or a label and the detective work that goes into like hunting down some dat tapes in someone's mum's loft or whatever. I'd like to sort of pose this question to all three of you. Um, what's, the, what's the most difficult reissue project you've been involved with personally? Well, the most difficult one didn't succeed, I think. Um, you know, you, you, if, if you, if you want to release some music from a real remote place and you try to find the artist or the, the rights holder and it's, you know, you can try it forever, but if you don't find them, it's, it's, it's not going to happen, you know. So um, the most difficult one, I don't know. I, I give that question to you. Well, uh, probably the same thing, the ones that didn't succeed, you know, the ones where you tried SCAP, BMI, trying to find uh, the right holders, contacting them and, uh, you know, getting another number where you have to call or send a fax to. They pr normally don't have emails ready, so not much emails uh, by hand. We've had a, a couple of ones that cost a lot of time uh, getting the rights together and uh, sort stuff. So um, uh, I think the the one that did cost most time for me was the Drexia uh, license. The easiest one or the most simple one is maybe a good example is the one with uh, Soichi Terada that we did recently. Um, you know, Huni had the idea of of uh, doing a compilation, and uh, we we agreed like, okay, that's a nice idea. Let's let's see if he's interested. And he mailed him and. Uh, 20 minutes later he had all the music in his inbox you know and it was already like okay let's go it was super easy and there's also examples of trying to find people and all of a sudden they seem to be you know they walk in the store or they're related with a friend of you or whatever you know sometimes it seems very hard but it's super easy uh, what is maybe the most difficult though is with um, major companies you know um, they tend to not really understand what's going on and before they understand what is really going on somebody already bootlegged it so or they're doing it themselves now it's yeah or they do it themselves and you know you as example you know the minako yoshida with the japanese uh, reissue that's a kind of a always difficult because uh, there's a lot of people in between so before decisions get made it's yeah well, and often it's it's not uh, it's not completely clear who's owning the rights, especially with a lot of old Italo stuff and the, the Chicago stuff. People signed contracts, contracts got lost. So people who did release them once assume they have the rights for 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 eternity, and you know so so you have a lot of miscommunications uh, there and, and a lot of misunderstandings between different labels and 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 rights holders. I think there's a few really interesting points that you guys have already already touched on, but I just wanted to quickly throw that to you, Marco, in terms of the a difficult reissue. I remember speaking to you a few years ago about the Mandre record. Do you want to tell yeah. us about that? Well, um, I assume uh, most of you know who Mandre is, but if, if you don't, he, he released three albums on, uh, on Motown. Um, and then there was a fourth, which uh, he did himself, uh, like he recorded himself uh, without a studio and pressed it up himself and most copies got lost and then you know I've been kind of looking for it for a long time and for him and this 
was like a year and a half of, of kind of trying to get in touch with him. The only thing I heard is like he's, he's now like an, an organ player in a church or something. He doesn't really do anything uh, anymore, and he's uh, s- uh, somehow happens a lot with the U.S. artists turned extremely uh, religious, <laughs> and uh, um, and then all of a sudden I got this v- vague email address, which a few people told me that we we sent him an email, but uh, he he never replies. It's inactive or something. Back then, I I did um, a little imprint with on which only released one or two records or something, but it was called Hand of God, uh, and my email address was m at Hand of God. Um, and Manray, if you look closely on all the Manray records, has an obsession with the letter M. There's always like a little formula that says uh, like an M is an M is an M, or there's like li- letters of M hidden in there. So I sent him an email from this email address M at the hand of God and being, you know, the, the spiritual man he is, yes, he, like I got a reply in five minutes. He was like, my God, this is a sign. Like we, we have to do this. And like like all of a sudden out of, you know, th- 30 years, like he came, came out of uh, like hiding and then we were able to do this reissue. There was no tapes or anything. We, we had to uh, restore it from the, from, from the record. But I mean, he was uh, not the mo- easiest to deal with in the f- in sense like he kind of left the the industry when uh, you know uh, Motown was still big so he like he you know he was like yeah okay just give me a hundred thousand advance and uh, or something <laughs> it's like he he kind of didn't realize like how m- the music industry had changed in in, in, in yeah it's like oh, I, don't, I don't know if and you know obviously he, he I think he would usually call on like a pay phone or something and then um he 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 passed away uh, a few years ago sadly but uh i mean it was a, it was a it was a lengthy process but i was very proud to be able to do it also because it was kind of a lost record and a and lost like a final chapter in his uh in his like uh, you know oeuvre uh and the, the the coolest thing about it is that he he was kind of uh you know re which is what's interesting about re is that he was kind of re-inspired to uh, make music again so he w- he was kind of bringing the band back together with like the original like he only played live a few times and i don't know if you've ever seen the sleeves where he like he wore like a full robot kind of outfit like the one on the 12 with the the pinball machine like he actually wore that daft punk outfit way before <laughs> daft punk did but uh he was like bringing the band back together and was t- planning on recording mandray 5 you know and, and so this kind of like set off this whole process and he was he was, I mean, he was ready to play live and do all that stuff and uh, I, g- I guess that's a interesting sort of um offshoot of of a like a successful reissue is that it can revive someone's career and lead to really interesting collaborations i guess uh Antel, you mentioned soichi Tirado is one that came together really well would you mind Sort of diving a bit more into how that project came together and what you know he's you've toured with him now and and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, um, so we did the release. I mean, uh, Huni went after uh, sent him a mail and asked for uh, uh, explained about the idea. He was really into it. Um, so we released the album and it got picked up on. You know, the the, the yeah, a lot of people were into it. And then one of our distributors in in Japan. He he mentioned like, uh, shall we do a show? And the show was in Kobe, so we we had no idea how his live show would be. And but as it was in Kobe, you know, it's like, all right, let's do it. You know, before uh, before knowing how it's going to be, we just just see how it goes. And uh, it turned out to be this really, yeah, you know, he's a really sweet person and, and, and nice to look at when he performs and everything worked out so we said okay let's you know let's try to do some more shows in 
in Europe, and from that one, from that moment on, it took off. And uh, and Marco, I guess with um, Gigi Masin's um, sort of retrospective release on music from memory, that led to the Gaussian Curve project, um, which is like a, I guess an example of how Rishi can lead to like this cool intergenerational collaboration um, and bring things into the here and now. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, uh, what a lot of people sometimes forget is that a, a lot of people that are whose music has been maybe forgotten about or something haven't necessarily stopped making music you know they they it just never really took off or only got picked up by a certain niche but they don't realize this is like a, an in-demand record or something actually Gigi Massine's uh first uh or not the the, the blue one wind that just got the reissued <laughs> by himself that was cool cool but uh he tried to sell that uh, initially through the newspaper uh like you put an ad up and you could just uh, send any amount of money and he would send you the record, it's just like a, 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 also way before Radiohead <laughs> tried to do that. But uh, nobody wanted it, so he was sitting on all this stock. But it, you know, he never really uh, realized that that was kind of a thing. And then the Music from Memory guys, you know, they, uh, they they reached out to him. And he, you know, he, he had no idea, you know. But on the other hand, he never stopped making music. Like he, I mean, he, he's just uh, he, he makes music, uh, you know, every day. I think, and uh, and it's and it's equally good, you know. So. It wasn't like a w once those guys got in touch with him and we, you know, we were just hanging out. It wasn't like a big leap for, for him to like, you know, be like, hey man, do you want to make some music? So it was a very natural process. On the other hand, I, I do see a, l a lot of people whose music is being, because I was thinking about this yesterday, this I can't think of too many examples of um, artists who made something, you know, a, a long time ago, now are putting that stuff out again or maybe unreleased stuff have been working with new artists and I guess because a lot of them are now in a different phase of their maybe their musical uh, mind state or something some artists made music that we like now because they had a certain collection of instruments which appealed to us now you know uh, and now they, they, they just use uh, you know the instruments which is a palette we we're not ready for right now <laughs> or maybe uh, sometimes it's just bad <laughs> It's uh, always quite in interesting seeing if you contact those guys who made the record 30, 40 years ago or 20 years ago and you contact them now, it's funny to see in what state they are. Yeah. I've, I've had some guys who were homeless or in jail, other ones were j still musicians, traveling, but doing something, like you say, completely different, doing like uh, lounge music or stuff like that and traveling the world doing lounge music in bars in Kiev or whatever. So it's 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 th that's an interesting that's thing about you yeah. know meeting those guys doing something different or being completely out of the the regular world be you know like yeah. i said being homeless or in jail i have i have to say this is there's, there's not very a big middle ground or something usually they're like uh successful uh maybe uh commercial composers or something or like rather like video games and stuff and but but uh like also a lot of guys have gotten in touch with them they were doing really bad you know like the yeah, no money yeah. well some some guys are did start in, in the second career and became laureate or something or yeah, yeah. something like that or so serge you mentioned who was the the musician in jail that you were referenced to <laughs> no, no, i don't think i should mention <laughs> it no no hoping to squeeze that out of you <laughs> But I, th I think he's, he's out of it already. He's out of it. Okay, that is an interesting point in terms of artists who are kind of people get in touch wanting to reissue some music they make thirty years ago, and they almost like actively dislike music from that from that period of their lives for for whatever reason. That's, yeah, I feel like a lot of the the best reissues that come out now 
um, whether they were made in the 70s or 80s, actually somehow sound very current. Um, well, what do you think? Of, why is that? Well, some music is just timeless. You know, it's not a matter of being current or not. Uh, but And some music was made by accident. It, it's good by accident because of a certain... Uh, group of circumstances where they were in the right place at the right time having and they had the right instruments you know um you you have songs you can make you know if you make them on an 808 and uh and a nice uh, you know a couple of nice synthesizers it will sound great and the same song ran through you know a, a, a virus or i don't know some weird trend synthesizer or something will sound uh, completely different or maybe horrible <laughs> so um and there's also a lot of artists that just made music that was uh, sort of in vogue at the time, especially with disco music and, and Itala music and stuff. They they, <coughs> they 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 just made you know a music that uh, that they wanted to be a current musician or something. And being a current musician now, it's like sometimes they lose their perspective. It's like Giorgio Moroder made a record with Avicii now. Which is you know, quite shocking, but on the other hand, it is what he did back then. He was, you know, he was a pop artist. He made pop music, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd, I'd sort of um, want to ask at this point if you guys could give us some context about when you first did a reissue. So I guess we're talking maybe 15 years ago in the case of Antal and, and Serge, and how you felt that sort of generally uh, reissue culture has changed since then. Our first release was actually a reissue. Um, this was. Really, this was a techno record from the UK, and a guy um, released that independently on a, on a 10 inch, I believe. And um, as there were only 200 copies available, and we wanted to start our label, we 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 repressed it. So the first release was uh, yeah was a reissue already. What was the other question again? Well, and I might just throw that over to you, Serge. What your first reissue was, and then we can maybe dive into how reissue culture has changed since then. Um, I think the first reissue I did was um, uh, Glass Domain from the Doppler Effect guys and uh, or the, the Detroit in Effect, the man you'll never see one of those. I'm not sure which one came first, That's, but I think those two are the two earliest ones. Did it feel like in those early days of, of reissues, the focus was on a lot of Detroit and Chicago stuff? I mean, I think in the beginning you you, you reissue something because you're super interested in the music and you want to, you, you know, you want to present it again. But nowadays you see that there is a huge demand on, on old tracks. And it also kind of goes against what you just said, because I don't think it necessarily has to sound current, you know, it's just popular, you know. I don't think Chicago House reissues sound very current or anything. But it's more that uh, because of, you know, websites like Discogs, everything that has been created in the past is now visible visible for people, you know. So they, people, you know, might be after it, wanted to get it, but can't get a copy. And this is also shown, you know, how many copies people or, you know, how many people are actually looking or wanting a copy. So there's companies now that are reissuing things like in high-speed uh, tempo, which is, you know, maybe debatable in if, if that's a good thing or not. But um, it may, it, yeah. I mean, you've, you've mentioned the, the D word there, Discog, so I think we should probably dive into that. Um, yeah. How much, I, I, when you guys were first doing reissues, Discogs oh, wouldn't have been really around, but how much, how important is that now? Well, I don't think you should, uh, I think you shouldn't forget about uh, YouTube, for example, because that's an, 
uh, an equally important source as well because people um, use YouTube to find music and they get suggestions as well and they listen to it and they even more maybe than Discogs because kids learn about music on YouTube and uh, then they start looking for it and then they end up on Discogs but I think YouTube is uh, a step yeah. ahead of of Discogs and for, for and most people and there's a lot of music on YouTube like Discogs is music which is archived yeah and YouTube has music which uh, sometimes has not been discovered yet or it's not artists so, yeah. uh, putting up their own uh, yeah. music which yeah. never or, or came some freaks they will have some obscure records yeah. and just oh well I I just put it on because I like it and and yeah. my friends will like my channel and they no but this yeah. thing go all goes hand in hand you know it seems like Discogs is somehow sort of the truth you know is what people know. And then when people find something else, which is on YouTube or wherever else it is, but you can't find it on Discogs, then they get really excited, you know. So, And that's kind of what I have, what I sometimes think is strange, because I know people that spend 65, 65 euros on a really rare African record, but they don't know D-Train or something, you know, so it's a bit like... Well, yeah, th that's exactly what's happening now. I, I've, we've been discussing with my, with my friends uh, a couple of ago, people are looking for records nowadays, that like 15 years ago we thought, well, you know, that's a bad copy of D-Train, for example, or something else, like a, f a cool funk release. And we thought, well, okay, you know, it's it's okay, yes, but it's but now people somehow look for that one and, and they skip D-Train, for example, which was a starting point, point for us. Well, I mean, um, Marco, I know you've been pretty outspoken on this in the past, but do you feel like there is a, a sort of situation now where people are like overly worried about something being rare or expensive versus that actually being good? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of rare records which are not necessarily good. They're just rare, and they're rare because they they weren't so good, you know? Uh, and, uh, um, but there, there, there is, uh, I, I think, uh, right now, like the, re the reissue culture or whatever is, is, is kind of, uh, you know, if I would... I could draw you a graph over there, <laughs> but it's been like this lately, where a lot of things are 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 coming out just to get just to get reissues out. You know, you notice like w w I mean, uh, uh, like ten years ago, there was like a lot of edits, you know, and a lot of bootlegs, which has gone down. I think some of those same people are now just doing reissues because that's the acceptable way of of it, it is a way to make an easy buck. You know, like. Uh, because you can track somebody down quite easily these days and just get the rights, sell a lot of copies. But but I think also, like you said, the the releases that a lot of popular popular music was very for, uh, form formulaic. So uh, a lot of things that felt out of that formula was kind of obscure back then. But now I think that the whole musical landscape is uh, people have access to a lot of niche music much easier, and they 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 appreciate it much more because there is so much music available to consume that they find try to find something that's more personal to them so then they 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 come to really obscure releases that 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 mean much more to them than than really big releases that they already heard somewhere in, in the background or whatever so they find it themselves and that, that you know it has some has more value to them so even the most obscure stuff has an has an audience nowadays yeah, and, and you and you notice know also with the, with the 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 trend aspect of certain genres of music. Like, uh, <coughs> I mean, uh, I think the, the first like big or the wave I experienced was with like space disco stuff, yeah, you know, which yeah. got really in demand. And I, now I see all those prices like yeah, yeah, went well, way going down up and again. Down, yeah. And then uh, yeah. the African stuff and the it's Japanese stuff is ridiculously yeah, crazy now. But you know? but but I think now, especially with the internet, even the the smallest obscure stuff. 
um, can find their niche and uh, people know who's releasing that stuff and get enthusiastic about it and know where to buy it. So even if you, if you have a small uh, blog or something, uh, you you can become a source for real obscure uh, space disco or African music or whatever. Obviously, there is um, a thing for sort of especially 1980s Japanese electronic music at the moment in terms of reissues. I mean, obviously the the Mariah record, which I'm I'm sure some of you would know, was voted one of the top albums of the year on on RA last year, and it came out in 1983. Um, why why do you think there's like been this wave of interest in in Japanese music? Well, because uh, th- they made a lot of lot of really really good music, and uh, um, and they were all, all also very very uh, ahead of their time uh, technology wise, you know, and and. Uh, and uh, and there's a few key people that were uh, uh, involved in the, uh, a lot of the, 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 the these records, you know, like uh, Hosono, like um, almost half of all the Japanese records somehow Hosono is involved in that, you know, who was one of the members of YMO. Yeah, it feels like it's there was a time where it was more or less impossible to kind of get through to like a Japanese sort of major label or the, you know. Um, yeah, better days, and that was owned by Columbia, yeah. and yeah, it yeah, all um, ends up at a major, and you you would just get no reply. For right. all the interest in uh, Japanese reissues, Serge, you have worked with Larry Heard, and you've done Drexia stuff there. Actually, I w- would like to sort of maybe dive into um, how you first started building a relationship with Larry Heard, uh, who famously had was quite a sort of mistrust in the industry, um, yes. and for good reason, I guess. Yeah. Can you can you tell us about that? Well, Larry Heard is of course a sad story. I think. I mean. One of probably my biggest influence and my biggest hero in, in house music is Larry Hurt, and um, he he has he's such a nice and gentle and friendly guy, and he has been um, scammed by so many people that he was kind of you know uh, he really felt like okay I don't want to be in this business anymore. He, he destroyed a lot of master tapes and uh, took a, a regular job at a uh, news station doing uh, the the audio for a news station in in. in in the US and uh, stopped doing gigs and and uh, well so he was kind of disappointed and 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 um he, he just did some DJ gigs to you know to make the money and because he, he enjoyed doing that at some point and he told me that oh, well I don't want to deal with records record labels anymore I don't want to licensing any license anything out because I asked him if I could license something and he said no I don't want to deal with that stuff anymore I'm, I'm I only I'm only disappointed and don't want to continue with it. And so um, we had well a moment. When was this? Sorry? When was this? Uh, this uh, f- probably like ten years ago, something like that. And um, we had him over for a show, and we we had breakfast the next day, and and we were chatting, and we were driving around in Rotterdam and having a chat, and we stayed in contact after that. And um, well, slowly, you know, we we had some some friendly relationship, and then you know, uh, I, I asked him about. Uh, about the track I want to have on 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 a mix CD I, I was doing, and he said, "Well, okay, yeah, I'm not sure, but okay, let's try it. We can do something." And so that was my first uh, license I did with him, and that uh, you know everything went went smooth and well. And slowly, we, you know, we start talking about doing more stuff. And now we we are uh, reissuing the whole alleviated alleviated catalog, and uh, and have a, have a nice relationship on on on, on a, tr- a trust based relationship. Um, you mentioned there was something about like an instrumental version of a of a track that you wanted to put yeah, out. The, yeah, yeah, that was the first thing I wanted to release. There was um, uh, I'm strong, I'm strong, and I I always was playing the the uh, RNS version, 
And that one had an instrumental version, which was a huge hit when I, a huge tune when I first went out in, in the Roxy Club here in Amsterdam. And it's I still play it. In, uh, you know, I ne it almost never left my, my DJ box in all those years. So I, I, I asked him, I okay, I want to do this I'm Strong reissue. But um, he so he said, okay, which versions? I said, well, I want to have the, 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 the main instrumental, instrumental version and... Um, or the main vocal version and the instrumental. And he said, okay, yeah, there is no instrumental. I, we only did vocal versions. But I said, no, I have this record. It's on there. It's the B-side from, from the record. He said, yeah, but seriously, I never did an instrumental version. I said, but it's on the RNS records. He said, but I never licensed anything to RNS records. I said, but man, I got the record here. It's in my box for the last 15 years. So he, then he did some, some asking around. And then it figu he figured out that the studio engineer did an instrumental version when they left the studio because they, they rented the studio, did some hours there, did a recording, did uh, a dub version. or uh, So they had three vocal versions and a very short uh, bonus thing. And that guy sold uh, one of their instrument or the, the, the one of the vocal mixes and the instrumental to Jack Tracks and Jack Tracks licensed it to uh, RNS Records. And that's how that rec record came about. But he did, he had no idea that uh, that there was around. It's quite funny, like uh, like uh, the the dealings I had with old music that used to be you know was made in Chicago in back day, back in back then like um, like a lot happened in the studio that wa was not really uh, people weren't aware of. You know, I mean, as I mean, there, there a lot of them were young and. You know, there would be five guys in the studio, and uh, and they they would make a track, and the next, even yeah. like the Might next day, maybe version, nobody yeah. made who, yeah. who 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 actually made the track. So n and then then you we go and ask them, yeah. like uh, you know, like uh, 35 years later yeah, or something, like hey, what's no up with that track? And then yeah. five guys exactly. say, like, yeah, I made that. You know. <laughs> and and generally speaking, how it has sort of the amount of reissues in the market affected you guys as you're all sort of regular DJs how has it affected your DJ sets and what, what you sort of take out for me it doesn't change much um, I still play the records that I want to play New, I, I play new stuff I play old stuff and there is so much music that you know if you get bored with something after playing it for, for a couple of years or a couple of months or weeks or whatever then there is plenty of stuff to play uh, and uh, it's also the audience I mean the audience and the people on the dance floor they don't know uh everything they they know a lot but even if i i mean we, we were talking about the discogs thing and uh, how some people uh, dig for the most obscure stuff with the biggest want list um i find it funny to uh, that that's probably my character character a little bit to do the opposite and find the one and a half euro record and and still sell two thousand copies in the reissue and uh, you can still buy that record for for eight euros on, on discogs or one and a half or two or whatever and a lot of people just don't they people just don't know about it so there are so many good records out there you can grab up for cheap but uh it's i mean i i, I did reissue a couple of those records as well and antal was playing one of them recently like the Roy davis one that you could buy that record for for you know for for cheap but it's still a record so many people uh, overlooked and it's still worth doing a reissue for something like that and get a new mastering and and get you know some attention for for the for the artist so I, s I saw someone post one of their mixes on Facebook uh, just last week, actually, and they kind of made a point of saying, like, no reissues in the mix, which I thought was a kind of weird thing to, to say. But do you think that there will be, like, there could be, like, a backlash against against reissue culture? Or is no, I, I mean, it's about the music. It's not about, I mean, it's not everybody, not everybody wants to play uh, 75 euros for a record. 
Um, some people just skip it. They say, okay, well, I, I really like it, but I can listen it on YouTube or I can get a digital rip of it. And I don't, I don't pay that kind. Of, I, I cannot afford that kind of money, and 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 they buy it when it's on a reissue. I, I mean, it's not like uh, this. Uh, it's you know, buying vinyl is, is becoming kind of upper class thing sometimes. You know, it's it's uh, it always it's you know should be working class people thing as well. Okay, well, thank you everyone, and uh, thank you to our Antal Surgeon Marco for joining us for this panel. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to the Hour with Resident Advisor. Thanks to Aaron and our panelists, Antal, Serge, and young Marco. Next, Mark Smith is discussing the idea of inspiration versus process. The panel's challenge was to put into words things that are sometimes considered ineffable, namely where an artist's creative fuel comes from and how that's turned into music. Randomer, Palms Tracks, Object and Dasha Rush attempted to provide some answers to this fascinating and difficult question. Hello, Amsterdam, beautiful city. This panel, I guess, compared to everything else that we've got running in this little um, pre-conference conference, is probably the most vague on paper compared to the other ones. In case you didn't know, the title is Inspiration versus Process. Um, what does that mean? Good question. We've all got very different ideas about it. You know, these are all very different artists who probably think about what they do in very different ways and make music in very different ways and have different values and place importance on different things. But that's the whole point because, you know, I'm sure some of you make music and it can be a bit of a mental challenge, you know, and there's quite a distance between how we perceive creativity and what these people do and the information that we get about it. So I guess this is just really simply talking about how people make stuff and how they think about it. And hopefully that can, for all of you guys, make you feel a little bit closer to that yourself. And I touched on just a little bit that this is also slightly to do with how we perceive artists. You know, um, we like to put them on pedestals in some ways, but this isn't a takeaway from the brilliant work that these guys all do, but maybe it's a lot more approachable than you think. And even though they make all these different styles of music, perhaps the things that bring them together are stronger than the things that keep them apart. So we've got Rowan Wilder, who's also known as a randomer. Hi guys. Um, just to put his, we'll put all their music in boxes very quickly. Um, I guess he, you'd say you make stomping organic techno right now um you know for our host deck mantle lies hemlock back in the day but you also come from a vaguely uk bass lineage and used to make john bass and stuff like that so yeah hello hi again <laughs> what a pleasure yeah that was a great intro jay donaldson hi amsterdam aka <laughs> palmstracks Wearing wearing glasses for probably the first time. Are they are they real? They're not even real. <laughs> I never got too too in music technology. I just I just want to like try and give a better impression of myself. What well, everyone's perception of, of your intelligence has gone off the Richter because of that. But anyway, yeah. Um, melodic house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a very. I just got a three point five out of five RA house. That's how I. <laughs> That's a perfect definition, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 
another deck mantle guy and um a couple of bits on lobster theremin he's very self-depreciating about what he does but he's definitely seems to have got a lot of people really on his side absolutely fantastic <laughs> next up we have tj hertz you right. might know as object um i guess the last big thing you did was the trezor mix album on pan released his own white labels a hessel thing thanks for being here pleasure thanks then we got Dasha Rush up the end here. Hello. Who's been making abstract electronic music for over a decade now with an emphasis on techno, but it's definitely gone all over the place. Runs her own label, Full Panda. Yeah. That's Thanks correct. For being here. Thank you. Dasha, do you ever feel like you have a moment where you can picture a vision of a, of a sound that you want to achieve in your head beforehand? Um, yeah, it actually, it's, uh, for me, it's always like that. I actually come, you know, the the way I work, it comes from the idea, from the impulse, the idea that I have, that I'd like to, you know, kind of um, transport into, transpose into a musical composition or something. So um, I know that some people working during, like, the process and they find something, but for me, I have a starting point always, I don't know, for some reason. <coughs> it kind of helps me, or that's the way I am and how I work. So it's like, you know, I have this moment, this magic impulse of inspiration, which is, you can call it idea, and then you put it into process and you're trying to put it in form afterwards, musically or visually or whatever. Do you try and remain as faithful to that initial feeling as possible? Do you feel like what comes after is a, is a reduction of like the purity of that initial feeling? No, no, it's not a reduction. It's, I mean, both inspiration and process are connected. It's like all in one, but there is a starting point and then the kind of development of it, I, I would say. So your last record is obviously fairly tied to what you're talking about. Where did the inspiration for this concept come from? I actually have a really concrete story about it. Um, like um, the f the the, uh, the first track, well, the second technically, but the first track comes from actually reading a book of Alan Edgar Poe, and I fall asleep with the book, and then <coughs> and then during this semi dream, I had um, like funny kind of semi dream that uh, you know I'd Alan Edgar Poe telling me, well, you're reading my poems now, you have to write me an answer. Like that's you know a fantasy, but a semi dream. I don't know what was it. So that was actually a starting point. And then I kind of woke up and I said, okay, I'm going to write an answer to Alan Edgar Poe in my own way. So that's how it happened. For example, oh, it's a brief story, but yeah, yes, something like this. Can Can you just expand a little bit on what the concept of the record is for if people don't know it? Uh, well, the concept of the record is um, basically. Um, like a fine line between um, asleep and awakeness. So it's like you in a semi-dream. So sometimes, you know, you sit there, um, I don't know, in the subway or somewhere, and you're kind of there, but you're not there. You're half asleep, I would say. Your, your, your mind is somewhere else. And so the combination of these feelings, thoughts, and kind of a vague, vague sleepy state, but yeah, sort of a dreams, but not really. And do you try and cultivate these sorts of moments where, you know, where, th where these ideas come from? Is that something that you actively try and chase or is it... Uh, I don't chase it, it comes naturally. Well, it, it feels like... <laughs> I don't particularly... Well, yeah, probably you do 
um, kind of work on it sometimes and try to focus on something or like um, give uh, some time for yourself for a thought or developing a thought or an observation. I actually, what I like to do is just to sit in the streets and observe people or whatever, trees or something. So um, I, it's not like you're chasing for an inspiration, but you, you kind of, or you, you know, you kind of um, let this space for yourself to kind of to catch it or something, but it can come, it can, you know, maybe not, I don't know. Have you had periods where it's felt like there's been a, a drought in it? Have you ever been worried that, like, do you need these things to start working? Or can you make music without these initial moments? Technically, yes, I can make music without those moments, but um, it's not the same process. Well, like, um, if I collaborate with someone, uh, it's not necessarily the process goes the same way. I don't come from the initial idea, but uh, it could be uh, like just jamming around and then comes something comes. I can, but I think that's not what I like the most. <laughs> I like to have this little picture, little fairy tale for myself, a little story or scenario, and then kind of develop it into an idea, musical or other. So what does this all sound like to you, Jay? The, you know, you're always talking your music down. Can you just give us an Id idea of like what sorts of different music you were making before like those first couple of Lobster Theremin 12s? Dubstep. Um, just just lots of dubstep. Or, well, tried to make dubstep. I could never do the wobble bass though, so basically that's like the main part of dubstep. <laughs> so I just did dubstep drums. Um, <laughs> should have sold them as loops. Anyway. Um, I mean, but then I guess, so I used to be quite inspired. Um, that sounds like quite a weird thing to say, I guess. But, uh, you know, at the time when I started making, when all of this was like really new to me and I was in Saltford, um, small village, just buying enemy <laughs> magazine, um, you know, it was just really exciting and you'd start, like everything would be inspiring to you to stumble upon like a new synth or a, new drum pack or a new tune and then that would you know just get you get your juices flowing um but then i don't know after a while i guess it's if you sort of if the working i work on a computer on a laptop only so have logic and um i guess after a while you kind of become a little bored of uh just looking at the screen and you know going through the same motions and um, so the kind of process side of it starts to starts to take over a little bit, and um, I don't know. It's w it's weird that once you feel a bit more comfortable in in like say working in Logic or something, uh, the inspiration isn't necessarily there anymore, and it becomes more of a struggle to kind of get something down and like get yourself like the first hour. It usually takes like a first like an hour or so to get going. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm inspired anymore. I have like any, I don't know. I don't read, I don't read any poetry, and I can't write. I mean, I've barely write a, st a single song, let alone a full album based on a, a poem. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting there now. The thing is, I does that does that make you feel inferior or something? I don't know, well, yeah. I mean, I I'm probably the worst producer in the room, so I don't even know I'm. <laughs> um, but I just bought speakers for the first time, and actually. <laughs> 
I have to say that it has completely changed my life. If there's anyone out there who doesn't have a pair of speakers, I would highly recommend it. Um, I know that you're gonna. I know you're gonna touch on this in a, in a minute anyway. But but I, I would actually agree with with TJ, where I think that the inspiration comes from the process. Like me having speakers or playing around with a delay or something. That is where I get my inspiration from, my ideas, and then you can kind of see the rest of the track forming around it. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I never get hit by a wave of inspiration. Were you excited about house music when those first twelves came out? When my first records came yeah, out. Were you yeah, like no, I mean, I still am really excited by it. Um, but it's different. Like, uh, the only thing I could compare it to is I went to see the Chemical Brothers when I was really young. And I was listening to all this music and it just sounded so alien to me. And that I had no idea where any of the sounds were coming from. And, and then uh, I went to see them at Sonar last year when I was there. And I suddenly, like, picked up on all these different things. I was like, oh, that's a 909 and that's a 303. And you suddenly start, like, piecing it together. And um, so, like, w when I'm listening to the music, I guess I'm listening to... I'm still trying to be excited by, like, new sounds. And so house music kind of feels very familiar, but that's maybe why I'm listening to sort of less uh, synthesis-based music now as opposed to, like, a few years ago when that was really what I was going for. And maybe that's why, like, sort of older house music and disco and stuff is exciting to me at the moment because I can't really imagine myself doing it. Um, maybe it's time you figured out that wobble bass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll do it on the trombone. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about what process is. Um, obviously an extremely broad term again, but I guess it's the things that these guys are doing over and over again. Um, I, I guess it sounds less sexy than, than being inspired. You know, it, it almost sounds like mechanical, you know, it's to do with systems and optimization. It's um, making the best out of what an, an initial idea can, can bring. But this interconnectedness of them is interesting in that, does this exist in other musical um, genres or is this to do only with computer music? TJ, do you perhaps want to answer that? I think that's a big part of it, yeah, sure. Um, I guess maybe with like free jazz or like krautrock or um, genres that like rely quite heavily on sonic experimentation with like more traditional sound sources, you could still get um, quite a lot of process-driven inspira inspiration and creativity, like people m making sounds from... Uh, unusual tools and using that as the idea that drives a piece of music. Sure. Well, I mentioned the, the Trezor mix you, you did recently. Sure. Can you talk about the means with which you compiled that and perhaps some of the underlying goals that you wanted to achieve with it? I mean, the process there was more iterative. It would be like I would record a take, I would figure out what was wrong with it, I would edit bits out, I would maybe like overdub bits on top of it. Um, certain parts were played live, certain parts were edited on the computer. Um, sometimes it was embellished with effects or like chopped up or, um, you know, there's, there's bits where I edited in some fills or like some little reverse swishes and things to make it, to make it, to like glue it together a bit better. Um, I don't know if the, I don't know if the process itself was really, um, so inherent to the, the, the creative, the, to, to, to the, the 
conceptual goal of the mix. It was more just to make things sit better and uh, to allow me to fit things together that might not have fit if I'd just done it all live. I just want to get a sense of how much of that time are you spending it, like make making it be as good as it can be versus exploring processes and means to keep going further into new ideas within that track? Um, it kind of it kind of goes like, hang on, uh, looking from this direction, it kind of goes like this. You c you can draw on that if you want. Uh, <laughs> don't don't. I, I I don't know if it, I don't know if it's, if this really warrants a, an actual drawing, but um. No, I mean I'll I'll have a a a burst of uh, process-driven inspiration, usually driven by frustration with where I've where I've got to so far, and I'll end up ripping a track to pieces and starting again, having heavily processed some or all of the elements, or maybe I've like resampled the whole drum bus and pitched it down by an octave, or like um, I don't know really completely changed some of the melodies or replaced a bunch of stuff. And then from there, I'll usually tighten it up as far as I can and then realize that I'm still not happy with it and then do the same thing again. And I kind of keep doing that until eventually the big changes get smaller and smaller and smaller and the little changes get incrementally closer to something that sounds finished to me. I feel like I maybe overstated my first point a little bit and that like it's not it's not that I don't believe in inspiration, like clearly not. Um, but I think that inspiration um, can come from, also from outside sources, but while you're working and not just at the beginning. It's, it, 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 it can, but doesn't always have to be about having an like a specific idea of what you want to create before you start making it and see that idea through to its logical conclusion. Well, you said before that it often comes from a point of frustration as that being like a catalytic factor in it progressing forward. In my work, yeah, sure. Um, but that's because I'm a very inefficient producer. <laughs> Do any of you here, feel free to jump in, um, find hitting hitting walls as a really important point in getting where you want to be? Yes. That's for the buzzer for me to speak. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, also a buzzer. Um, so, yes, hitting wall. I do exactly the same as TJ, so I'll arrive at a, a point where basically just want to get my job back at the cheese shop and just think <laughs> that it's all over. And then, you know, you'll find, you'll hear, like, a melody that you've done and you'll put something else under it and then you'll hear it in a completely different light and then that'll take you off in a different direction. Um, I'd also say you could do a lot worse than just ripping other people off. I know that that's not, like, the best <laughs> advice to give, but... Um, I, uh, make a whole career out of it. Yes. Well, I'm not sure you call this a career, but <laughs> I did make uh, one track. The one of the first tracks I did, I basically came together because I, I was listening to a lot of the Burrell Brothers and they did all these flourishes with like really, really bad um, string samples. Well, not bad string samples, but you know, they, it's not getting the orchestra involved or anything. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try something like this. So I did a little fill on a really bad string string patch over top or something and then you know out of that I started to see how it could come together and um but yeah you're, I think you're always hitting walls I mean I also think like I'm not the kind of person to do a track in a, in a day like like TJ so but that's also good like if you sit on it for a few weeks and stuff then you you come around and you have other ideas and then you could see what's out of place and strip it strip it back and do you have this separation between like um, 
you know, TJ wasn't really responding to it, but this idea of like having an initial idea of or like a vision for what a track could be, whether just through like messing around through process, but then do you ever get stuck spending time in like refining and optimizing rather than developing? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, you've re I think you've reached that point in every, almost, on most tracks, because um, you're, there's never, I don't know, there's never really, you're never really, because you're the engineer and the musician, um, this can go at something about inspiration versus process. You're basically talking, like the inspiration part would maybe apply to the musician in you, but the process part is obviously more in part important for like, we're also engineers. You're also in charge of like doing all the bits that you wouldn't have traditionally done as a musician. Um, but uh, yeah, I do, you do get stuck kind of fine tuning or listening to, to details that maybe other people wouldn't latch onto. Like I went, I spent maybe a month and a half wondering whether to turn up the hi-hats 0.5 of a dB because I was working in iPod headphones as well. So I was like quite, um, I was like hyper aware of all these like minute details. And I, I didn't, I couldn't really, I didn't know how it was going to sound on like a, on a sound system. And I never play my tracks out. So the first time I would ever hear it is like on the finished record. So I would just spend so long trying to decide whether this hi-hat should be like louder or quieter. And, um, and then, you know, you'd, you'd play it to someone, you'd be like, what do you think? And they just have no idea. So you, can't, you do need someone to like pull you out of that. Um, what proportion of your guys' music ends up not coming out? How much time are you spending on stuff which we don't even know about? I think I've released every track that I've made in the last two years. <laughs> What's in the pipeline, Jay? That's, that's how slow I am. I'm like the total opposite. I think I might start like 50 ideas a month or something and one gets finished or two. Well, maybe five get finished and one or two I think are all right and then one is actually good. I can't leave an idea. I, I, I should basically stop working on something and just start something else if it's not going well, but I have to just sit there and sit there and just sculpt. I feel like I've got like a load of marble but it's the only marble i'm going to be able to afford so i have to like <laughs> make the best of it otherwise i'll never be able to make a sculpture again um so that's i just see it through to the end and even if like i i don't like it i just have to know that it's done and i've worked on it and done the best that i the best that i can <laughs> even if you sometimes end up with a statue of, of of a person where you fucked up the head so you had to make the head smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller. Yeah. Um, I've, I've or a bad B side, <laughs> or that. Um, pretty much every track that I've finished, I've released as well. Um, but for every track that I've finished, I've done maybe seven or eight sketches that will never see the light of day because I don't think they're very good. What about you, Dasha? Well, um, I mean, technically, it's approximately the same thing. You know, I can redo and redo track, or you know, so so. But um, personally, actually, I also <laughs> have these moments where I go through the emotional palette, where I just sit there and listen, and I think, oh, that's terrible, that's shit, I have no talent, I have to stop right now doing everything, or uh, the opposite, they'll be like, oh, that's great, that's great, oh, you know, I catch the inspiration, or whatever, whatever. And it can last in loops, like, for days, about just one little piece, or, like, a three-second loop, even, you know, like, it's... A somehow but sometimes it's completely the opposite so um i guess i'm just how do you would you call it um, and get emotionally involved into the process of just 
analyzing or making it or just like denying it or the whole spectrum of emotions and things like this. A little bit psychotic or something, yeah. Something like that. We're all completely and I mean, technically, <laughs> yeah. Well, you were, you know, taking a more technical aspect where you just, you know, sort of... Yeah. No, but I think... Yeah, doing yeah. and redoing and... Like how you feel about what you're working on is, is totally a factor as well. And it also affects the kind of... Um, the kind of direction that you steer the process in, like if you're exasperated with it, with with a track that you're working on, and you you have no faith in it, you have no faith faith in yourself, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna steer you into a particularly creative direction. Um, I find it's yeah. kind of helpful to work on multiple things at the same time in that regard, because then you can always take a break from one. Distract and yourself and then go back to it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. On that note, as a final question from me, would you think that, you know, what separates the wheat from the chaff, like the why you guys are here versus why some people are out there, is more to do with <laughs> your exceptional beings? Um, is, is it more to do with... sat there. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> um... Anyway, is it <laughs> is endurance and discipline more important than raw talent, so to speak? Is just being able to stick through these periods that you're talking about where you're totally questioning what you're doing and going through these huge peaks and troughs, is just the sheer endurance and ability to get through it like an important factor? I believe 100% that it is all about patience. And the only difference between now and maybe five years ago is the fact that I will just, I won't give up. And also that I have the confidence that I'm, there's not some secret button that I'm missing or something. I always thought, oh, you know, um, like Joy Orson or something would have like some, some big panel and they would just do it all. The mix down button. Yeah, the mix down button or something. But actually, you, you, I've realized that I, I'm using all the right tools, sometimes not in the right way. But, you know, you've, you've got everything there and it's just a question of like sticking through of it and actually believing in, in your idea. Believe in yourself. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> well, for me, what I find is consistency you know, consistent process is very important. Actually, I wanted to draw a little diagram about the process and, uh, in, you know, in interlapping with the inspiration. But actually, you know, process has... Um, I have subgroups of a creative process, which, you know... Um, well, basically, the, the idea that I arrived to, process must be consistent in order to, you know, reach the inspiration, ins inspirational parts are more often. Because if you, like, really period, like, uh, a periodic process uh, actually has these gaps where you just kind of lose it and then you have to restart all over again. But that's how it's just for me. So, consistency. Like, you're constantly working, no matter which project, but just, like, you know, and the process itself has, <laughs> okay, I'll show it, I don't draw it, but I'll tell. So the green line is the creative process. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't know, can you hold <laughs> So the green line is a creative process. It has a subgroups, which, um, like, let's say, intellectual thinking process, searching, including the just basic enthusiasm, you know, into discovering something. Then the other subgroup is actually learning process in terms of, already um, formed information by other people, maybe discovering some people's music or music theory or whatever inspires you. And then the third line, the blue line, is a practicing, is a basically practicing your skills, um, you know, 
playing drum machine or you know whatever. So all these three comes into the green line, well together. So it's creative process, and then <laughs> the inspiration back to inspiration. It's a very bad drawing, but quickly. Um, so as you see, <laughs> could you help? As you well, like that. As you see, so if that is inspiration, I, I like to visualize as a periodic waveform because we're talking about music. So you know, it comes and goes, whatever. If it's a divine force or divine impulse, whatever. So if the process is consist consistent, you kind of have more chance to reach that point, which is you know ideas, and then that will oscillate even more, you know, it's like if you drop the stone into the water and it oscillates. So if the person, I don't have the other drawing inconsistent, you know, you just like punctures, then you just miss that point maybe and then the whole thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? But so I arrived to that conclusion that the more you work on something, the more you kind of get into the, you know, like a int like strong interaction between you know the moments of inspiration and actually achieving to do something, form an idea and go go on blah 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 blah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. That's that's my theory. When you yeah. download the RA exchange, is it going to come with a PDF? With <laughs> the drawing. We'll have to we'll have to talk to the no, dev no, no. team about that. <laughs> you could, you could, I mean, I just draw because you know my articulation is not the best. It's not my native language and so on and so on. So for me, drawing is easier. Like. But even if I draw no, but that's a that's a great takeaway. Is that you know, it's one of these cliches, but sticking yeah. with it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, we define inf everyone define inspiration, you know, the way they want. But it's still, for me, it's still um, something that we cannot explain. You know, like I was say, I was thinking, you know, if you take the biblical inspiration, is the voice of God. Even if you don't believe in God, actually, nowadays, if you try to, you know, define what is inspiration. There's still no information <laughs> about it. It's still we don't know why and when and how and so on. You know, there are different triggers, but yeah. It's like a marriage. Yeah, a marriage. Just got to <laughs> keep working on it. It's kind of like exactly, <laughs> exactly. You go to one pizza place and you're like, let's go to another pizza place. That's your different door, like Rowan's different door. <laughs> That's your it marriage. is kind of like an obsession, like a really obsessive relationship with someone, because they will hurt you. Like you will have those moments where you're like, um. Oh, really shit this i can't make music i'm the worst and then but you still go back you still go back to it and then yeah. every now and again you're like oh, i'm killing it yeah. and you're like yeah <laughs> this yeah, is the yeah, best and then true. and then you have the memory of that in the back of your head like oh i just want I just want that again chasing the dragon just want that love again <laughs> that's it for this edition of the hour thank you to all of our participants and audience members at the first ever deck mantle festival conference We'll be back next month with another blend of documentaries, discussion and interviews. You can find RA's podcast, The Hour and The Exchange on residentadvisor.net and find us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange.